Bucks got all the right steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. East Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Hunter Muscato, Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Nucky spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got him. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. J.J. German for the win. He got it. J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Who in the blue hell are you? You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos and the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Something uh, new that happened that I'm not experiencing Santa's sidekick, but several people should have should have put it on uh, on the on the Twitter or the social media um, things. But how you listen to podcasts? I had several people that just sent me either direct DMs and or text messages, like, "Hey man, excited about the pod." My dad, 1 a.m., sent me messages about him listening to it. Um, and trying to fall asleep. Obviously. I don't know what he's that doing. Does make sense. I, I have no idea what my man's doing. So, a lot of things that are going. But uh, how do you listen to your podcast? Take a picture, do something, and then attach it to uh, this week's episode. I'm just kind of curious. I know people were doing it in car line. Uh, people that travel a lot were listening to it. Uh, there's somebody in like a long line at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or one of those coffee shop type places. Probably Dunkin' Donuts. That's where I would go. I don't know where they go. But anyway, so uh, just curious about that. But don't forget, uh, subscribe that way. Thursday, when we drop this at, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning, you guys will have as much time to get prepared for ETSU Vanderbilt. That being said, it's odd. I guess because we played, or just felt like, wrapped up hours ago in the spring to turn around and play again. And for normally a first game, we spend a majority of the breakdown trying to go over rosters and positions. and And this is something brand new for a lot of teams around the country. And it's, it, it's even for Vanderbilt, it's just the fact they've got new coaches, but so many knowns for ETSU coming in this game, Mike, and so many unknowns, not personnel uh, necessarily for Vanderbilt, but what offense, what defense, what it looks like, what kind of energy they're coming off not winning a game last year. Just curious to see the known sort of 
against the INF? Well, firstly, to me, that's the big positive for ETSU in this game, right? They are solidified. They have so much back, top 24 tacklers, everybody that threw, caught, or uh, carried the ball last year. Everybody is back. I mean, it is unprecedented, unheard of. I tried to find a summation of where Vanderbilt is at in that same realm and did a little bit of a deep dive on their roster. I can say this. ESPN has a returning production index, and this is the nice thing when you get up to, like, Power 5-level schools. There's all these, like, metrics and all these things that you can look at that gives you a better idea of where they're at without you having to go player by player through the roster. It is quite nice. And it says that they returned 75% of their production, quote-unquote, hence the production index, on offense, 57% on defense. Now, normally, Jay, that would sound like a lot, right? 75%, 57%, wow, they've got a lot back, but keep in mind – with a lot of schools having played in the spring um, and the different layout this year, the fact that eligibility didn't count last year and you can get that free year, uh, it's not a lot at all. It's 57% in the defensive side of the ball is 102nd in FBS. They do have 9 of 11 starters back on offense, 8 of 11 on defense. They've got a number of offensive linemen that sat out last season. Cole Clemens is the main one. Started in 2019, most notable of the three that sat out that are back. The left side goes Tyler Steen at 6'5", 315, and Cole Clemens at 6'6", 335. So like a Power 5 school on SEC side, they are big up front. But you listen to those numbers, 75% on offense, 57% on defense. That really doesn't strike me as that much considering the year that we're in. And those players, as you mentioned, are going to be playing largely new schemes, and that's where I think the rubber really needs to hit the road early for Vanderbilt. How quick can those players produce on the field in a game in those new schemes with Clark Lee and his two coordinators, uh, offensive coordinator David Rye, who is a former Cardinals and Packers wide receivers coach, Jesse Minner is the defensive coordinator. He was a defensive assistant with the Ravens coming from the NFL to the college level. So uh, Lee coming from Notre Dame, obviously, the D.C. there, sounds like he's going to run 4-2-5. And offensively, um, I've seen a few places. Now, keep in mind, I'm not attending Vanderbilt practices every day or breaking down the tape that I was able to acquire from their video coordinator or anything like that. But a pro spread, I've seen a couple of places where there's going to be a lot of uh, misdirection, a lot of pre-snap shifting. ETSU is going to have to be very disciplined to not bite on a lot of that. They're trying to create the one-on-one matchups, right? And then it's who wins, your guy versus my guy. They're going to have better athletes, right? We get that uh, for the majority of position versus position matchups. Um, but ETSU is more seasoned. They are more veteran. This is a game for me, and not to go into the entire breakdown, but I'll just summarize it like this. This is a game to me that I'm not sure that we're expecting to win, but I think you and me are both expecting it to be close and be within a score or two. I think anytime you go play a school of power five, and, and whether it's Vanderbilt or Tennessee or anybody else, I think certainly the goal is to survive the first half, which – the first game against Tennessee, they survived the first lightning strike, if you will. You know, and ETSU was having great success, especially defensively. They were stifling the lightning strike. All of a sudden, Tennessee changed their offense philosophy and basically put about nine offensive linemen in, came downhill, and then it, it, it went down from there. ETSU against Vanderbilt, sort of the second go-around of a Power 5. ETSU in a 7 nothing game, able to go down the field, 63-yard drive. Bill Gold's blocked. 
Bambi goes down and scores. It's 14 nothing. So 14 nothing at halftime. Still not awful. You've moved the ball a lot. First play, third quarter, just took the wind out of the sails. And so that's sort of what you want. You, you don't want the wind out of the sails. But what you want is you want in the first half, that first BDTSU has been okay. You've got to be able to survive that and then see what happens. That's especially in football with depth and everything else. You know, in other sports, and I'm not discounting any any win for any of ETSU's teams against Power Five. They're all well deserved. We saw volleyball do it again. Um, the other day, we've seen obviously baseball and softball and basketball, and of course Billy Taylor's team went to NC State and went on homecoming. And the ETSU team, I think, only won four games that year. So I think anytime you play these games especially in football, just depth. And so, so the longer you can sort of keep them at bay is obviously the best scenario for any FBS team. You know? And so I think if the Bucks can move the football, if the Bucks and they had time of possession the first half, actually favored ETSU against Vanderbilt the last time. If they can move the football, move the chains, first downs will be a must. They not a lot of three and outs. And then, honestly, try to use their experience, as you mentioned, against Vanderbilt to sort of stymie them early and don't let them get their footing early. My concern is when you have a new coaching staff and they're trying to change the popular term, right, trying to change the culture, they're 0-9, they haven't won, they don't believe. If they get up early, this is going to be a game where they're going to try to hang 80. And not because the guy's a bad guy and really won't, would do that in further down the road two teams, but in game one where your team hasn't won, they haven't felt good in a long time about something and you're trying to establish something, they will try to step on the neck of the Bucks, And so you cannot let them get off to a quick start. In the same token, they're trying to change the culture, which means the culture is losing. The culture has not been successful. So if ETSU could get off to a hot start, how does that play into the mix with the players, even though the coaches have trying to kind of bring them up? The other thing I would say about the coach, Jeff, I'm glad you brought schematics up a little bit. A lot of – I've read they do very in-depth post-game interviews on the – I mean, 15, 20-minute post-game interviews that they put online left and right, and I've listened to every single one of them. And when Clark Lee is apologizing for the quarterbacks for interceptions because basically – they're having to force throws due to situational things and, and other things. I'm, I don't know that that's a good sign for what he's seeing in his offense. The other thing I would bring up is the offense has also been confused, and this is going to probably hurt ETSU. The offense for Vanderbilt's been confused because of all the complex looks that the defense has thrown them, which tells me they're not necessarily maybe doing as much Notre Dame stuff, or they are doing a lot of Notre Dame stuff, but they're sprinkling in some of that NFL Baltimore Ravens things that Jesse Menters brought with him and kind of curious to see how that goes. Offensively, I expect to see something new every play. And what I mean, whether it's going to be four wide, it's going to be two backs, whether it's going to be an RPO look, whether it's going to be a, you know, just a straight, you know, five guys on a route, whether it's going to be a draw play, whether it's going to be screen, whether it's wide receiver screen, whether it's a bubble screen, whether the tight end gets. I mean, there's a lot of things I think that Vanderbilt offensively, I would be shocked unless they found a play or two that ETSU literally just cannot stop. I would be shocked if the same personnel grouping is in for two or three straight plays. Uh, it seems like that that is sort of their philosophy there. So it's all about, as you mentioned, misdirection, confusion, eye discipline for the defense, you know, read your keys, all that. So this will be a fun test for ETSU's defense. Will they be able to build off the spectacular 
spring season that they had, um, adding in some pieces, having some guys get some more reps that were a little bit younger, how would they be able to sort of handle the different stuff? And then the ball's going to be in the air for interceptions. They threw 11 picks last year. They've already thrown a ton this season in the fall camps that they're having to apologize for in post-game meetings. So there's going to be opportunities for the secondary to make a play. Will they be able to make those plays? I'd like to go back stat-wise to the last couple of full seasons for the defense and the offense because obviously the spring, you don't want to throw out the results for ETSU. You don't want to throw out the fact that they nearly went and won a Southern Conference title. Uh, those things are legitimate, and I don't care who was playing, who wasn't in terms of other teams in the conference. I don't care who quit, who stayed, so on and so forth. Um, but stat-wise, I think it's much more comparable just because of the spring and how weird it was, how few games were played, and um, just all of the different intangibles that didn't line up to the rest of the seasons that ETSU is playing. So I like to look at 2018 and 2019, the last couple of years for the defense, and really offensively there's a few things to point out too. But the big thing for me is the turnover game. And as you said, this is a Vanderbilt team that in the past has made mistakes, has shot itself in the foot. And keep in mind, 2018, ETSU won all the close games. 2019, they lost all the close games. And if you look at the turnover numbers, they coincide with that. The Bucks were plus one in 2018 in turnover margin. Eight fumbles that they recovered that flipped possession, 15 interceptions. 2019, minus six in the turnover margin, only Four fumbles taken away from the opponent, seven interceptions. So that's minus four and minus eight in terms of takeaways. 23 forced turnovers in 2018 to just 11 in 2019. I'm not breaking news. I get that. Um, turnovers shift the game. They flip momentum, and they completely make the complexion of what we're dealing with something totally different from where it was. And, you know, when you have twice as many turnovers in the 2018 season, it's not surprising to see the Bucs win a title in all the close games in 2018-2019 come up short. There's a couple of things I think to be concerned about with the Vanderbilt offense, and we can't really go back a ton, right, because this is an all-new coaching staff, and there were players that opted out, and once again, no non-conference last year, just a ton of different things that were um, off the beaten path from a regular football season. But they bring in Ramon Davis, transfers in from Temple, and he has gotten a ton of laud and credit and applause from people around the country. Um, I think he was a PFF All-American in his first year. I mean, that, that's quite impressive, especially at a school, you know, Temple, which the Buccaneers are a bit familiar with themselves because Jared Folks is in his eighth year, you know, comes from there. A couple of others over the last couple of seasons have come to the Temple as well. I, I kind of like Ken Seals. I know you're saying that, yes, there have been some apologies for – um, how things have gone from the quarterback position in the early going, there's going to be an adjustment period. Is that adjustment period for these quarterbacks, Ken Seals and Mike Wright, who Clark Lee says is also going to play, is that adjustment period just camp or is it going to bleed into the season? That's the big thing to look for because Seals, yes, turned the ball over a lot last year. A true freshman, though, was second in all of the country amongst true freshmen in passing yards, nearly 2,000, and he's already, I think, third in Vanderbilt history. In 300-yard games, now granted that's only three, <laughs> but that's still quite impressive to have three 300-yard games, especially when you're playing in the SEC for the large majority of your season. 
in, in fact, last year, the entire majority of your season, the whole year, nine SEC games, no non-conference. Uh, and they have a lot of receivers back. Cam Johnson, Amir Abdul-Rahman, and Chris Pierce. And Pierce is like 6'4 and 235 or something. I mean, he is absolutely massive. So that's going to be a matchup difficulty for the Bucks. So there are some players on the offensive side of the ball. But once again, it's not going to come down to who is more talented in these matchups, who's got the size, who's more physical, um, who's you know got the ability, just a better natural athlete. I, I think that when you're talking about SEC versus FCS, it is assumed that it's going to be on the SEC's side of the ball. We get that. But ETSU is much more together. They're much more in rhythm. They have the camaraderie. They have been around each other. And, quite frankly, they played more games recently than Vanderbilt has. Vanderbilt had to sit there and think about an 0-9 season for 10 months while their coaching staff went through a complete uh, transition and a complete overhaul. Obviously, the makeover, something that Vanderbilt felt that they needed. But those players couldn't have felt good sitting there thinking about that. Now they have to try and digest this whole new system on both sides of the ball. They are not together. They do not have that camaraderie. They do not know what the other person next to them is going to be doing all the time. So that's where the big advantage is for ETSU. Vanderbilt has some players on the offensive side of the ball. Can they put into action what Clark Lee and that offensive staff is trying to instill in them? I enjoy the great counterpoint of the freshman thrown to the wolves, nine-game SEC, you know, see what you can do, put up. Honestly, if you look at it for Van, not just Vanderbilt standards, but a lot of standards across the country, is a true freshman who was able to do pretty decent numbers. Then you put him in a brand new system where they want to run the quarterback more, and you got Mike Wright. And I'm afraid I would be so excited if I was a Vanderbilt fan if the offensive system didn't really change. You were just changing some other philosophies, changing the defense. You're just trying to change culture. You're trying to win ways. I'm kind of curious to see, does Seals have a short leash? Are they going to double him up? Are you going to see Seals is clearly an accomplished thrower, talented thrower. Mike uh, Wright has a chance to make plays with his feet. He had a rushing touchdown, I think, the, the year before, threw for one, but sparing action. He didn't play a lot. Ken Seals got a lot of the bulk and majority of the time. So kind of curious to see, will we get into uh, – probably a terrible example, but the Chris Hatcher where we're going to see both quarterbacks, but if somebody scores a couple of quick ones, will they make a change at all? Will they stick with the game plan? Or, you know, will Seals play a couple series, maybe not have good success, then all of a sudden uh, Mike Wright comes in, he has a little bit of success, and then you don't see Ken Seals anymore. You really don't know. I think special teams is always huge in these situations because, again, there's just you can really flip a field. We saw the we mentioned the block field goal last time. One of the more interesting transfers I think I've ever seen, but uh, Joseph Bullish, or Bullovish, sorry, Bullovish, is the kicker for Vandy. And as I was doing research on him, I was like, oh, he set the Alabama record for 75 PATs. I'm thinking, well, what high school did he play at? No, no, 75 PATs for the Crimson Tide, national championship winning, transfers to Vandy to kick. Out of all the baffling things I've seen in college football and transfers, that's the most baffling. I've, I've, I've Googled it. I've done all kinds of searches. I, other than it says, hey, he's landed at Vanderbilt. There is nothing I can find why he would leave a program where he set the school record for PATs. It was like 19 to 21 in field goals. Perennial national championship contender. And he's going to. Winless Vanderbilt game. Yeah, thank you. you. I'm just, I have tried. Wow. To, now, I'll say this. I even tried to think, you know what? Man man wants to be a doctor. Vanderbilt, man, great school. Man wants to be whatever. 
it's marketing. He's getting his degree in marketing. I thought you were going to say, like, interdisciplinary studies, because marketing is still kind of ridiculous, too. I, but that's like, what I'm saying. Like, you, you, you're, tell, you're telling me you can't get your master's degree in marketing at Alabama. So out of all the things that, you know, I was going to put, the, obviously the, the big transfer for them would be um, at tailback, right? You've already mentioned it. Davis. Davis and all the accolades he got. And actually, I watched his highlight film his freshman year and sophomore year. In the freshman year, he makes some plays that are quite incredible. Mm-hmm. So he will be – Hard to stop. We saw Cam Johnson, the, the wide receiver, couple catch against ETSU in 2019. But again, I, I'm changing my mind on who the the transfer is. So Bullivish, if he's able to, to kick, you got to feel pretty good. If it comes down to special teams in a situation, not just field goals, but um, uh, you know PATs, everything else that comes with it. So kind of kind of curious. A little bit more of the context of Seals and the rest of this team. And again, I know you can't go back and look at the stats. Uh, certainly ETSU season from the spring, even an SEC schedule that was conference only, you know, there's a lot to be wary about considering it as a new coaching staff with Clark Lee and everyone he's brought in. But my hope is that this team hasn't changed a lot, this Vanderbilt squad, in terms of what they do well and what they don't. Obviously, as an ETSU fan, you hope that they're winless again, right? Because that means that ETSU would beat them. So, yeah, on that front. But when you break down the statistics, firstly – a little bit more on Seals. Third SEC true freshman quarterback to start a season opener since 1972. So in 50 years, just the third to give you a bigger perspective on it. Passing wasn't the problem for them. They were about middle of the FCS in passing per game, but they couldn't run it. 113th in the country. Couldn't stop the run. 91st in the country. Keep in mind, I think there were, what, 130 FBS teams. Uh, some of them didn't play last year, right? Uh, couldn't stop anyone, gave up 37 points per game, 112th in the country, and turned it over far too often, minus 14 in turnover margin, also outgained by nearly 160 yards per game. To me, what stands out there is the things that ETSU does well, it seems like Vanderbilt does not do well, and the things that ETSU maybe doesn't do well, Vanderbilt doesn't seem like they're going to be able to expose. So you look at their inability to stop the run. Well, the Bucks' strength offensively, Quay Holmes, Jacob Saylor's that offensive line. Randy Sanders talked about it last night in the coaches' show. I'm glad they can pass it, honestly, because that's the Bucks' strength defensively. The secondary, Mike Price, Tyree Robinson, Elijah Huzzy, Karan Lentz, the starting four back there. That's great. Uh, them not running it, that's good because ETSU is maybe a bit light up front right now, right? So if their running game, again, this year, and they do have Ramon Davis, and things could be completely different. They do have some offensive linemen back. That, that is a worrisome part of this contest. But if it's like last year and things don't click up front and Davis doesn't have a good day, then that's great because ETSU, it doesn't strike me in the front uh, three slash four at least, that they are as strong as they are in the secondary. And as we mentioned, one of the big keys for this year, be more like 2018 than 2019 in the turnover department. Vandy was a minus 14 last year. Minus 14, like bottom 10 in the country. If ETSU can be more 2018 than 2019 in terms of fall football, then that's going to be a big plus too. So just to summarize, I mean, you look down the row of each statistic and it seems like ETSU does things well that Vanderbilt cannot stop. Where Vanderbilt maybe could expose the Buccaneers, they do those things well. So that is encouraging to me, again, provided that this roster isn't uh, all of a sudden up to the task of taking on an entire fall season and having some success at it. Big plays will be huge. Um, ETSU, I believe, will have opportunities to hit a few big plays just from 
the style of defense it appears that Vanderbilt's going to do. Unless, and Coach Sanders said it last night, unless they just decide they have better athletes and to sit back and just to dare you to go, you know, sort of four or five yards a clip down the field. My guess is, as they're trying to put in and steal what they want to put in and steal. The other thing is, I'd be curious to see how much do they really want to show everybody else. And does ETSU maybe get a better chance in this game because Vandy's like, you know what, we are playing this. We should be, we should win. We beat them 38 nothing a couple years ago. We didn't win a game last year, so we still have better athletes. We're just going to vanilla this. And I'm wondering if ETSU, the old Mike Tyson, everybody has a game plan to get punched in the face, right? If ETSU could punch one in early, curious to see how that changes the philosophy for the Commodores in this one. What's the line, 21 and a half? 21 and a half, which, again, we debated around the office. I said between 17 and 24 would probably be fair. And it was, it was close to what I think you had said, too. I mean, yeah. so we I, I thought all, it would be like 23 or 24. I thought it would be more towards I mean, the still, Yeah, but it's still, you're there. I mean, a couple, to a two-point safety away from where you thought. I, I would almost guarantee that this game is – within that margin. I mean, it, it feels like I mean, they're going to get to with a hook. <laughs> well, I, I hope that they get Vanderbilt with the hook because that would mean it would be 21, right? I, I don't think there's any way it's more than a three-score game. I, I really don't. And I think that ETSU has a real chance to go and pull this up. And as real of a chance as an FCS team does. Buccaneers are what? One in 13 against Power 5 programs, and you already mentioned the one. NC State in 87. It was a long time ago, and this type of thing doesn't often happen. But if you look at the set of circumstances for both teams, it is a perfect storm. And my hope is that ETSU is able to capitalize and at least stay in this game, for much like they did against Appalachian State, right? Three quarters, you were right there. Got out of hand in the fourth, understood. Um, I think that it's pretty assumed across the board, and disagree with me here if you'd like, but Appalachian State is a better football program. Hardly anybody listening to this is going to argue with you. I don't think you'd find a whole lot of people that would. We may have a random Vandy alum I don't know that listens that could be (laughs) offended, but other than that, unless you're a Vandy alum, and even they, I mean, judging by the fact that they buy tickets to sell to other teams, that they're willing to sell a $4 ETSU ticket so that they can sell a $200 ticket when Alabama comes to town. If if App State plays Vanderbilt tomorrow, App State wins by two touchdowns. Yes. App State may be a 21-point favorite. Yeah. Uh, so I, I – the only – Point being, if you can stay in that game with App State, you've got a chance here, especially with the setup circumstances. Right? That's the, it could be a perfect storm. It could be there. Um, ETSU has to stay on a third and long. Again, that's been the bugaboo. It was the best percentage of third and long last year. Still 52%, Mike. Even, even that 2018 year was above 52% on third and long. So they've got – to get out of third and Third long. downs and penalties have been really the consistent thing since football's been back that they have not been able to resolve. And that's got to happen if you want to get back to championship form, unless you're high-flying on the offensive side, which you would need then a great performance from your quarterback for essentially the entire year. And Tyler Idell, uh, I think, showed really good things in the spring in the first couple of games. And then Coach Sanders went to Brock Landis, and we haven't seen Rydell since. So the hope is, with him being named starter week one, Pick up right where you left off. Because I thought he played reasonably well those first few games. Also, uh, for those of you who follow me on Facebook, and a lot of people do, I am. I didn't do it last year just because they outed the season, but I will be bringing back our predictions. Oh, yeah, I missed that. Our predictions from the fans. And uh, I do I do I have worked out. We've got some prizes this year for the folks. Really? I do have some prizes. They're not, I don't want to – prizes could be a strong word, not spectacular. There'll be something. 
we'll get something. Are you still trying to give away that broken fridge in your garage? Is that prize number one? Uh, well, that was going to be the grand finale. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, mean, I ruined it. I mean, but, you know, eh, sorry. Okay, there we go. So that is Breakdown of Vanderbilt. We're going to take a quick time out because, yes, we do have sponsors. Yes, the Tennessee Lottery told me they love the show. So yes, Bright Ridge is back. So I love pumped. it. I love it. 30 seconds. We'll be back talking Southern Conference football. Santos and the sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. You'd be amazed to learn what one Tennessee lottery ticket can lead to. For you, it could be lucky, but for others, it could open the door to so much more. With more than $6 billion raised for education, the Tennessee Lottery has proudly funded over 1.5 million scholarships and grants. That means, on average, more than 130,000 Tennesseans every year continue their education just because you played. The Tennessee Education Lottery, game-changing, education-benefiting fun. Breakdown. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. Sandoz and the sidekick. We have ignition. Strap it on, here we go. In your face, all over the place. Breakdown. Is it a better day? No, yes, this is not the best day ever. Monday was, podcast back. Number two, so I come football. What do you got? And then will every day we do a show after this? It just goes down. Day. Oh, that good. Okay. Good. 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 I don't know. It depends on how we do. Promising out. Oh, goodness. Uh, what games got tonight? There's a big one for Chattanooga. Two ranked teams, Austin P. Chattanooga. Chattanooga has never lost to the Governors. Really? But the Gubs, over the last couple of years, have had uh, some of their best football teams. That is, as far as league play, that is the only matchup of ranked teams. Bucks still beat them when they went to the Final Eight. That they did. Elite Eight, whatever you want to call it, quarterfinal. And uh, other games of note that would be competitive, Tennessee Tech at Sanford. Curious to see what Oladokun, now that he's gone, will Liam Welch be able to uh, pick up where he left off, throwing for like seven thousand. You know, the I mean, he was the offense player of the year last year. So Preseason player right. of the year again. Then yeah. the guaranteed win point at Mercer, and then the Citadel uh, playing. The Citadel schedule is spectacular. It's basically where did Jamie Chadwell used to coach? I think they've got beside. I mean, they got Charleston Southern, which was his old stomping ground. Um, and then, of course, they play Coastal Carolina. Do they have North Greenville. They do have North they Greenville. Have North they have Greenville. all three. <laughs> They have all three of Jamie Chadwell's stops as a head coach. But if they could, if they were allowed to play Delta State, they, they could have got them all in at that point in time. But anyway, they're doing the Tour O Jamie Chadwell, and so they open up the Coastal Carolina. The game of tonight, as we record Thursdays, Austin P at Chattanooga. Chattanooga had some opt outs. Uh, clearly, was off to a great start. Um, the only game they lost was because they sat on purpose twenty of the twenty-two starters. I don't know what to expect, Chad. Except I think they're going to be uh, for the. Um, I'm sorry. I can't even say that. <laughs> decent. Um, uh, fairly decent. You can't even say fairly decent. I, I, I'm Southern Conference champion. Wow. I had a hard time. Wow. I had a hard time. Uh, Saturday, you've got Davidson and VMI, North Carolina A&T at Furman. Wofford goes to Elon. That should be a decent one, right? Wofford at Elon. Wa- uh, will Wofford be able to kind of bounce back? from whatever Josh Conklin's been trying to do. I have it's, – it's the most – it's always baffled me. It will continue to baffle me. I don't understand 
what his game plan is. I'm not sure he does, but they got to bounce back from like the one and four, one and five, whatever they were last year, one and five maybe. Very unwafford like. This will be a good sort of barometer test, right? With Elon. They Elon used to be in a league. They've had some good battles. It's a nice stadium. So, you know, very good CAA team, or at least middle of the pack CAA team. So we should be able to see what Wofford has. North Carolina A&T at Furman would be, besides Austin Peay, Chattanooga, I think that's game one everyone should pay attention to. Game two should be North Carolina A&T at Furman. North Carolina A&T had a spectacular last couple seasons like Austin P. They've come on strong, very good talent, uh, very good speed. Furman, always tough to, to win in Greenville, South Carolina. Be curious to see, you know, how they got Devlin uh, win, uh, yeah, win back and all those guys. So be curious to see exactly how it goes uh, in that contest is game number two for me. Eastern Kentucky at Western Carolina. Mm-hmm. And how interesting that the only team that is ready to take on a Power 5 week one is ETSU, ETSU or Vanderbilt. Well, Funny how that works, isn't it? <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> to be the best, you got to beat the best. And Vanderbilt is certainly not the best of no, anything, I, but they're a power much five. higher yeah, yeah, level. Sure. Than, yeah. um, Seems like the perfect time. SoCon football breakdown. You no, you're circling no. again. No, you're circling again. No, I was going to another s- game. Yes, you're going to rank all of them one to nine. Is no, what you're doing? I could, but the other game because I'm not the. I'm. I will pay attention if Wofford wins or not, but the Western Carolina game against Eastern Kentucky, that would be the third. Those are the three I think key games to see exactly what the league is going to be. If Western is still Western, if they're not, but. We'll get into the full breakdown, but those are those, out of pure games. Those are the three games I would look at. Since it is opening day, I mean, the stage is set. And so going through each team, player by player, team by team, outlook by outlook, preview, recap, the whole thing. I mean, everything you could possibly want and everything you could possibly need to know about the Southern Conference on the football side is here on this Thursday, and we'll start with VMI. Number 17 in the country in the national poll, entering the year 6-2 and two last year, 6-1 and one in the league, won their first SoCon football title since 1977. Lost to national number one, James Madison, 31-24 in the first round of the NCAA tournament. That was their first winning season since 1981. Their only regular season loss was to ETSU, 24-20 to 20 on a chaotic final play on a fourth and like five where there was a fumble and an interception and also uh, off pass happened. interference and a touchdown for ETSU. Then none of that happened. Then some of it happened again. It was very strange. Uh, QB, Seth Morgan, whose numbers were almost identical, minus a decent amount of yards, but still above 70% completion rate to the man that has since moved on, Reese Udinsky. Uh, SoCon Freshman of the Year was Morgan. I'd say well-deserved. Their top three rushers, Corey Britty, uh, Morgan and Rashad Raymond and every other player that caught a pass are back, including stud Jacob Harris, who won SoCon Offensive Player of the Year. Only one of five tacklers is back, though. That's Stone Snyder. Only one of three with more than two sacks is back. Also Snyder, who is the SoCon Defensive Player of the Year. Overall, ten returning starters on offense, six on defense for a defensive unit that gave up 174 points in eight games last season. They hadn't given up less than 300 in a full season since 2003. Now, keep in mind, eight games versus 11 or 12, but they still averaged giving up just, I'm doing the quick math, 22 points per game. So they would have had to give up like 40 over the three final games if it was a full season in order to break 300. So long story short, this was their best defensive performance in nearly 20 years. Head coach Scott Wackenheim, who won a ton of awards in the spring, said, quote, as long as Stone Snyder is out there, I'll sleep well at night. Personally, I think that is 
their issue. Defensively, not having a ton back, a quick turnaround, will they be able to do what they did last season or even emulate it slightly because that was the difference with this team in the spring of 2021? I think the the issue for VM, they have no grad school, and so you just have to somehow decide to get another undergraduate degree. There's some things there that, that v, where Citadel does have grad school, VMI does not, so it's very hard to sort of try to figure out you know, how to keep guys a little bit longer. So that's part of the issue. I think offensively, you've mentioned it, Jacob Harris is unbelievable, as good as advertised. He makes everybody look great. Uh, best receiver in the league. I think it'd be, I, I don't think he's like it even remotely put somebody in his category yet. Uh, somebody may uh, step up for a team this season, but right now it, it's just him. So every everything offensively, kicking game has been terrible. That's going to cost some uh, opportunities, I think, again this year. But defensively, are they going to be able to stop some people? And basically, can Stone Steiner, will he be able to wreak havoc? And, and they blitz. It's, you know, they blitz, they blitz, they blitz. To make up for deficiencies on the back end, can they play teams that are going to be able to limit the sacks? And if they can, then certainly VMI is going to have a tough time defensively. Just one spot behind VMI in the national poll is number 18, Chattanooga, 3-2 and two last year, 3-1 and one in the league. Beat both Wofford and Furman when those teams were number 11 in the country. Three games they won by just 14 combined points. So there are three wins by just 4.6 points per contest. They won their first three games this spring to move to number 9 in the country. But as you mentioned, Rusty Wright benched 20 starters in the fourth game of spring versus Mercer when they lost 35-28. to 28. I was actually pretty impressed that they made the game as close as they did considering that it was essentially well, all new players out there. And they, f- they actually fumbled two punts and got their 20 <laughs> yes. and lost that game. Otherwise, it would have certainly gone their way. Uh, that week, nine freshmen started on offense. 17 of the starters had never started a game, opted out uh, after, quote, injuries and an insufficient amount of players to continue the season, end quote. I once again say, quote, and end quote around those words because I think that uh, there are many around the league that thought that that was premeditated. Uh, both quarterbacks that threw a pass, Drayton Arnold and Cole Copeland, are back. Top six rushers, Tyrell Price, Geno Appleberry, Lance Jackson, Alim Ford is the big one. Keep in mind what he did a couple of years ago against DTSU. Uh, Arnold and Copeland were in that top six as well. Top seven receivers, Reginald Henderson, Jamoy Hayes, Andrew Manning, Tyler Walker, Jake Gibson, Kenore McKinnon, and Chris James also back. Their top 12 tacklers, Cam Jones, Ty Beck, Christian Snyder, Drell Lawson, Brandon Dowdell, Rashawn Freeman, Devonche uh, Maxwell, a third team, uh, Phil Steele All-American, by the way, uh, Jay Person, Jalen Lee, John Prince, Justin Saunders, Zay Brown, all back. And they picked up Robert Riddle from Mercer as what I would imagine would be the starting quarterback if he is healthy. Now, my understanding is he is still recovering from that 2019 injury. So we're talking nearly two full years later. This was a catastrophic injury that he is still recovering from, and his availability for the opener and the non-conference is in question. So it seems that Drayton Arnold may still be the starter coming into the year. But once Mercer uh, transfer Robert Riddle is healthy, I think this is going to be an offense that has a lot of things going for them on top of uh, the running game that they already uh, do sport with Ford and others. Uh, Two other preseason All-Americans we didn't even mention, Cole Strange and McClendon uh, Curtis on the offensive line. Curtis, 6'7", 340 pounds. So accolades are everywhere, returners are everywhere, plus Robert Riddle eventually to come in and play that quarterback position and the return of a limb for it after he sat out the spring. Now, those are being very coy in game one in their game notes. It will be Drayton Arnold and Cole Copeland, one and two quarterbacks. 
It starts defensively, though. They're very good defensively. Brandon Dowdell, you know, not huge, 5'9", 195. He is, besides, I think, ETSU safeties, probably the best safety in the league. I think he does a great job on the back end. You've already mentioned a plethora of people coming back, but that defensive line and sort of that 3-3-5 look with the joker, whatever the heck they call these different – people are just making up names of stuff at this point on what they are. But basically it's a 3-3-5. They do a great job. They usually have three huge defensive alignmen that can control the line. That's where it really starts with them on the defensive end. And then when you mention the running backs, I mean, we saw what Alem Ford could do as a freshman. Tyrell Price got all the carries basically in the spring. He was the, the lead back before he got hurt, before Ford was able to take over. That's a heck of a one-two punch besides home sailors. you got to believe those two guys right up there for one-two punch in the league running game. So defense running game, generally recipes for championships. ETIC we don't have to talk about a ton because we did go through them ad nauseum. Uh, in defense the first and running game can win championships. <laughs> and earlier today, but uh, they are not ranked. I think the shade there is unfortunate. The stats perform FCS top 25, ETSU unranked, the only two ranked teams. BMI, Chattanooga, but I think it's safe to say, Jay, that you and me both agree the top three teams in this league going into the season are Chattanooga, BMI, and ETSU, correct? Yes. I think the next three teams which you're going to talk about, you, I, you, you could sell me that they could step up and win, and I don't think I could really argue with you. I think they have work to do. It's a season. We're about to go over them, but I think the, the top six teams, I think, have a legitimate shot to win it. The first three have the best odds if you were to be a Vegas odd maker and throw stuff down. I think clearly the first three are the favorites, but there are three teams that we're about to rattle through that I'm very high on, and they could put together enough wins to win the Southern Conference Championship. And I actually don't know which three those are. Is one of them Sanford? Yes. Four and three in the spring came within two overtime results of winning the league title. The difference between success and failure in this league, as always, razor Thin, 44 to 37, a loss to Furman, and then to VMI, 38 to 37. Their only other loss was to ETSU in the season opener, 24 to 17. Another great game where Ty- Tyler Rydell, uh, ETSU fans will remember, hit Julian Lane Price on looked like a corner post. A beautiful throw by Rydell. Price hauls it in, goes 59 yards for the touchdown late in the fourth quarter. Uh, Crystal Ladokin was a starter that day, and as we mentioned on the show Monday, he is now the starter at South Dakota State. Liam Welch returns as starter and quarterback. Top six rushers return Jay Stanton, Welch, DeMarcus Ware, Dakota Chapman, Ty Bowles, Montreal, Washington. Best pro- return man in the we league. We probably know better for his All-American status on special teams. Uh, though was a second-team also kind of receiver in the spring. Top 11 receivers are back. Ty King, A.J. Tony, Washington, Michael Weiss, Kendall Watson, Jairus Creamer, Stanton, Torrance Pollard, J.R. Tranrino, Creamy Chapman, guy? that's right, and Chandler <laughs> Smith. Their top six tacklers are back. Nathan East, Marcus Cheeks, Chris Edmonds, Ty Harry, Noah Martin, Armand Lloyd. Every player with multiple sacks returns. This is a team that, again, if a couple of things go differently in overtime, they are your league champion because they played VMI. It would have been VMI's second loss. Sanford, if they won both overtime games, would have been 6-1. and one. Incredible to me because we think of them as a mid-tier team, but just a couple of shifts and a couple of plays, and the league looks totally different. Armand Lloyd is legit, too, on the defensive end. I, the thing about Sanford is, and just Chris Hatcher and all his wackiness, they're always going to be about 500. But they can put it together. They find ways. They can find a way to lose games as much as they can find a way to win games. And I think 
they could easily go six and two, and there'd be a multi-tie, and they win the tiebreakers and all that. And I could see them be two and six. And if you were um, a, a person who liked to, uh, you know, have those uh, sports apps on your phone, 500 is probably a pretty good guess of where they'll end up being every year. Just every year, just market. They'll be 500. They'll be 500. It's no big deal. But they have the potential. All those guys you mentioned, Liam Welch being able to put points on the board if they can get enough stops, then I think they certainly um, can win the championship. I think they're still behind because there are some deficiencies there. They're still behind the top three teams, but they are one of the teams I think could put a run together. Another that can be confounding, I think, and certainly was in the spring, and another that if a couple of things change, we're right there in the title hunt, as it turned out, and I believe this will be another one of your teams, Furman, three and four, last year in the spring. Only two losses in the first five, and they were by three combined points. Fell off at the end of the year, lost to Mercer in the Citadel by multiple scores as they put up just 21 combined points in those two games. But, again, those first three games and those first five, really, in totality, you easily could have been 5-0 and oh rather than sitting there at 3-2, and two, and perhaps there was some steam out of the sails uh, once they were at 3-2 and two rather than being where they, I'm sure, thought they should be undefeated in the league and contending for a title. Starting quarterback Hamp Sisson is back. He threw all but four passes last year. Top two tailbacks, you already mentioned, uh, Devin Abrams. Devin Wynn is also back. Top ten receivers are back, including top targets Ryan DeLuca, Ryan Miller, Zach Peterson, Wayne Anderson, and Dewan Bell. Fourteen of their top 15 tacklers are back, aside from Darius Curse. This is going to be a team that I think is right in the hunt. I know as you do, and uh, again, the spring was uh, very odd for them, as it was for many. Fell off late, again, just 21 combined points, but for the first three quarters of that spring season, and they didn't get to play their last game against Wofford because at that point they canceled their season, but the first three quarters of that season, they looked as good as anyone in the league. And they, again, they got the potential. They, they, they've been there. They've done that. Got the pedigree for it. They certainly got enough offense to do it. I don't know what happened at that. You know, they had some tough losses. The VMI was a, a tough one. They were able to drive down the field, and then they would just fumbles and, and weird turnovers. And obviously they had some breaks go their way in the third quarter and was able to knock off ETSU. You thought, okay, maybe they, they beat Sanford, they beat ETSU, they're rolling tough two-point loss against Chattanooga, and then you started to see the wheels shake. They lost to Mercer, didn't really look that competitive, and then I don't know how in the world anyone lost to the Citadel by almost 20 points last year, but Furman had a chance to do it. So, will they be able to bounce back? Um, They got the pieces. They've certainly been contending for a championship the last several years, so... I think they have the pieces to do it. Again, they're just in that second tier. So we're five for five on agreeing on teams that are going to be in the top six. Is your sixth Mercer? Yes. Same here. Five and six last year. Five and three in the league. Lost five. In fact, one of the very few teams that really got to play all eight of their games last year. Lost five of the first six games from fall to spring. Won four of their last five. They're going to beat points, so it'll be five of six under Drew Cronick in his first season at the head of a Division One program in the spring. Led his team to a fourth-place finish. Carter Peavy is back at quarterback. Harrison Frost is gone. Three of the top four running backs returned, the one exception being DeAndre Johnson, who led the team in rushing. Also of note, Tyree Devzen is not on their roster. I 
looked and looked and looked yeah, he, he, to see where he has gone. He opted out last year and then decided to transfer. So I haven't seen where he's gone because I've looked in the portal, I've he, looked at his Twitter, I've yeah, looked everywhere. Yeah, I, I, I just know he's not a Mercer roster. He right. actually was uh, helping out in the booth with um, Rick Cameron last year. Really? And so I knew that he was done and transferring. He opted out and then decided he was just, just going to transfer. But you know, I, I don't know where he's at. I just know he's not He's not with the team. I don't think he's landed anywhere unless he's waiting until game day to reveal it. But he was fifth on the team in rushing. But remember, a sophomore All-American. He, a Ford, and Quay Holmes, when you think about three running backs in a nine-team league, uh, those three were a terror. I mean, an incredible trio across the league. I would put those three up against any FCS league for best running backs. If you're looking at a top three and even probably some group of five uh, leagues as well. Top three receivers outside of running backs return. Ty James, Ethan Deerham, Drake Starks. Top seven tacklers are back. Got after the QB last year, too. 29 sacks. A lot of those are back as well. Young team this year, no doubt. Only seven graduates or seniors. I think this is going to be a bit of a process for Drew Chronic. That being said, you could already see the progress towards the end of the year last year, winning four of the last five. So I don't think you can count out a run for Mercer because, once again, if you're able to build off the momentum that you did at the end of spring, turn things from losing, what was it, five of their first six and then winning four of their last five, you're going to get a win against point, and you roll into conference season after a productive non-conference. Um, this is going to be a scary team, especially considering, much like many teams in this league, they do have a lot back. Have a lot back, and uh, it's all about the misdirection and, trying to fool you and, and what to do. And Carter Peavy had a spectacular, I think, freshman year. They've got, I don't know, four running backs, a couple of jo- – they, they do the joker on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, they've got basically five running backs, a wing T set. I mean, it's it was interesting to see um, how they were able to line up and, and kind of confuse different people. Some games they were able to really confuse people. For the ETSU game, it wasn't so much that. It was, you know, just a couple plays here and there, some turnovers. Obviously, the the fumble return for a touchdown was a heartbreaker. The fumble on the punt return was a heartbreaker. So, um, Mercer was able to, in a first year, catch, I think, a little bit of a perfect storm where, you know, they caught Chattanooga and they didn't want to play everybody. And was able to win a game and get some confidence. And they were able to uh, play ETSU get some confidence and a big win. They were able to throttle Furman. So Mercer's going to be an intriguing team. I think they'll take a step back from the spring. But, again, I think if you're handicapping this, I think they, they're the last team that has a shot that could build off that momentum and be able to make a run. They play point, then they go to Alabama. So really, what do you know, right? They, they beat a team they should. They lose to a team they should. And then they've got Furman and Samford. At Furman, Sanford at home. By the end of those two games, if they're two and zero, I think you have to seriously look at them. If they're zero and two, eh, you know, okay, maybe the spring was a little there. If they're one and one, it's probably about where they should be. If you're looking at where me and you think right. they're going to finish, but if they go two and zero on those first two games, especially at Furman and home to Sanford, and then they got Western Carolina, I mean, they got a chance to really start to league off strong. So. Basically, we're saying you can separate this league into thirds this year. Chattanooga, BMI, ETSU, and whatever order you prefer. Samford, Mercer, and Furman in that second third, that middle third. And then the bottom three, I think we're pretty firmly in agreement. 
Citadel, Wofford, and Western Carolina, again, in whatever order. Let's start with Wofford because I know you like to crush Josh Conklin and say that this team is on a slide. I know he's your best friend, but go ahead. (laughs) On a slide with him at the helm, but their four losses in the spring went one and four were just 26 combined points separating themselves and opponents. Much like the Citadel struggled with COVID opt-outs and injuries much of the year, missing the ETSU game because of a lack of defensive linemen available, then opting out of the final two games of the season against Western Carolina and Furman. 28 points per game given up was their most since 2009. Quarterback Jimmy Weirich and Peyton Derrick are both back. Four of five players with more than 100 yards rushing are back. Irvin Mulligan, Nathan Walker, Jamari Broussard, uh, Derrick, Ryan Lovelace. Uh, The second leading rusher is the only one that's gone. So, again, Mulligan, Walker, Broussard, and Derrick all back. Only one of the top five receivers are back, and that was leading receiver Landon Parker, and I know – Wofford, at least historically, has not relied a whole lot on the passing game. Josh Conklin has tried to make it that way at times. Uh, So maybe if they go back to some of the football that got them to be such a feared program, that won't be a big loss. But they do have their leading man back, Landon Parker. Top 13 tacklers are back. Joe Beckett, Brandon Brown, John Beckley, Michael Mason, Tahir Anur, Brett Russell, Donovan Anderson, Miles Richardson, Logan Barnes, TJ Neal, Tanner Barnes, Harrison Morgan, and Jaheim Hazel. This is their largest roster in school history. 110 are on it. And Conklin said a really interesting comment, I thought, in the preseason. And this should not be encouraging to Wofford fans. And I'm not sure why you would even put this out there and say something I'm like very this. confused by him. Quote, there was always the idea that you'd have a couple of good years and then a couple of years of fall off. So a couple of years of fall off after a couple of good years. <laughs> yeah, North Coast State subscribes to that theory. So did you plan to be terrible after a couple of good years? Like that, that seems odd to me that he would – shouldn't you get better and better under a coach? Like third, fourth year is usually when you see the rubber hit the road because that's when your recruits are fully ingratiated in the program. I mean, I can appreciate sort of the thought process that you could say, okay, you know, it's hard to stay on top here and there. So, yeah, we're going to compete for a title two or three years, and then we're going to win, you know, seven, eight games, and we're going to be back competing for a title ten win seasons or whatever. I think internally that's probably accepted, right? But when you've won, I don't know, was it ten? They won ten games for three straight years. And then his first year there, I think they won nine games. And then they won eight. I think they did still share a title his first two years there, though. Right. Right. So – Basically, all we've learned is you were able to take the what wasn't broke, ride it out for some championships, and then admit you can't coach and you don't know what you're doing and we're going to fall off to then you figure out how to coach and then you can get them back. I, I, I don't, Even if that was the plan, why would you ever admit I don't, that publicly? I have no idea. I, it just, I mean, he was very close in the spring to leaving for a coordinator job, or in the, in the fall, I should say, not spring. In the fall, he was very close to being the tenant, which would have went well for him since that staff is now gone. But he was very close to being the defense coordinator. Tenant. He's been trying to get out Tennessee since he realized, yes, since you have real, or since he has realized he isn't going to do whatever in the world he thought he was going to do. Or he's in over his skis, or maybe Mike Ayers is just looking down on him every second of the day and the pressure's too much. I, I don't know. It was an odd hire when they got him. I didn't understand why they went that route. And when he tried to throw the ball against uh, South Carolina State and got hammered that game, it was uh, a sign to me that I'm not sure he knows what he's doing. And I still don't know that he knows what he's doing. There was always the idea that you'd have two or three good years and then there would be a couple of years of fall off. 
That is one of the more mind-bending head coach quotes I've ever seen. The Citadel, 2-10 last year, 2-6 in the league, lost their first nine games of the season before winning two of the final three against Wofford and Furman. They lost to BMI in that stretch. Suspensions, COVID, and injuries just severely limiting the availability of a lot of their roster, playing just 26 position players against Chattanooga in the middle of the season. Most points given up since 2008. They played a full season, keep in mind, 12 games, so that is apples to apples in terms of total points. Most points given up since 2008. Fewest points scored since 2010. So it wasn't just the defensive side of the ball. It was the offense as well. All rushers that played eight games or more are back. Jalen Adams, Nathan Storch, Cooper Wallace, Raleigh Webb, Logan Brout. They're starting QB. That being Adams is back. Everyone that caught four or more balls are back. Webb, Landon Owens, Ryan McCarthy, Cooper Wallace. Top six tacklers are back. Anthony Britton Jr., Willie Eubanks III, who I know you love, Marquise Blount, Andy Davis, Parrish Gordon, and Brian Horn. Injuries, though have already reared their ugly head in camp for the Bulldogs. Remember Alex Ramsey, All-American runner from VMI a couple of years back. He transferred to the Citadel in 2020, opted out of the spring, hoped to play in the fall, season-ending injury just over a week ago. And off-the-field stuff is back as well. Javante Middleton arrested this past weekend on domestic violence charges. Their big scandal, quote-unquote, from the spring was a bookstore fiasco in which a ton of athletes... It only happens in Charleston because Charleston Southern dealt with that before the Citadel. So Something down there that they think they can... That affected a large portion of their roster last year. So there's a lot of stuff going on at the Citadel, and if players can just stay on the field, I think this is a group that will be better. I know you think that Mercer's going to fall off. I'd say the team that's going to pick things up in the fall is the Citadel, but players got to stay on the field. They, Of course, injuries are unlucky, and you can't plan for those, but if you're uh, the Citadel coaching staff, you have to sit guys down and say, hey, look, you've got to be smart off the field. You've got to stay out of trouble. We've got to have you on the field. Do you want to have another year like last year, 2-10, and ten, lose your first nine games? We can't win without everybody being in. And so if they don't get that, then I think it's going to be another long year. But I think in theory this is going to be a better team simply because it seems tough to imagine that they would have as much going on off the field as they did last year. Well, and for the quarterback position, who's a kid in Johnson City, Jalen Adams, actually talked to his dad, which um, had to work the uh, Science Elizabethan game and, and Shorty Adams, his dad, was chatting with me and I was talking about, you know, how's Jay doing, how's off season and he was like, Well, you know, he's added fifteen to twenty pounds and trying to you know, to run that system at hundred and sixty five I think was tough. He obviously was not able to finish the game against D T S U. You know, if he can add some more weight, take a little more punch, he's very talented. Um, I mean kid's not afraid to stick his neck out there, so I think with the opt-outs they had, with all the other stuff they had, the Citadel was not as bad as they were last year. They also had the weird oddity of giving up all these touchdowns in the first, like, three or four yeah. plays. Like, just terrible starts to the game. Uh, just something snake-bitten. But at the end of the year, they kind of started to figure out, started to get rolling. So I don't think they're as bad as they were last year, but I still think they got some deficiencies they got to figure out. 
Western Carolina, I think it's a pretty large consensus across the league and in this studio that they're probably headed for bottom of the league. One in eight, one in five in the SoCon in the spring. Only one of eight losses was by less than 17 points. The final two games of the season were canceled because Chattanooga and Wofford opted out of the season before they played the Catamounts. Third straight losing year led to the dismissal of head coach Mark Spear. He's now, by the way, a senior analyst with Appalachian State, landed on his feet. Kerwin Bell, who was in offensive roles with South Florida and Florida over the last two years, now the head coach. Leading rusher Donovan Spencer is gone. He transferred to Southern Illinois. Leading returning rusher is Makai Stanley. 224 of the 230 passing attempts are gone. Ryan Glover, Will Jones, Mark Wright, the top three passers, departed. People are really high on Rogan Wells, the Valdosta State transfer that comes in presumably to start. Two of the top three receivers are back, Calvin Jones and Raekwon Heath being those. 15 of the top 18 tacklers are back. Of course, really tragic news came recently. John Peacock, offensive line coach, died from complications of COVID-19. Just 32 years old. Tough to even talk about football at the moment for Western Carolina when you're discussing a terrible thing like that so close to the season. Of course, even more difficult, I'm sure, if you're on the inside of the program. That was one of those moments where you're watching and, like, the scroll at the bottom said West Carolina. I'm like, what is that? And then I kind of rewound through the DVR and all that, and I was like, holy cow. And then you see 32 years old, right? And just unbelievable. Um, Kerwin Bell, I know – out and of from uh, my time down in Florida when I lived in Ocala, worked for uh, WGGG and WMOP, and so Kerwin Bell's former quarterback, he was with Emmett Smith at Florida, was also part of the group that was uh, taking the uh, benefits that led to the no TV ban, that's not even a thing anymore, but they had the no TV ban, and Florida got in all kinds of trouble. He went on to um, be the head coach at Jacksonville, where I think a lot of people uh, would remember maybe him when the Bucks were in the Asin days, even though ETSU wasn't playing football, had great success there. National championships, you know, plethora of college championships. Then he, you know, they parted ways and Jackson ended up dropping football altogether. And then he goes to Valdosta State, certainly able to do great things there. And then he's come to West Carolina. So things would point to he knows what he's doing. He's been able to pick up wins. You know, he did it in a non-scholarship. He did it with limited scholarships. Now he's going to have a little bit more scholarships. So we'll just see how it works out. Bringing your quarterback when you're a former quarterback and you run a system and he wants certain things done a certain way, I think can give a jump start to this Western Carolina team. I think he just has a lot of deficiencies to try to make up. I mean, that would be my guess. You agree this is probably a bottom yes. of the league team? Yeah. Just in the fact that they were really competitive in the spring. Every I mean, team, you can hear Pretty competitive Western Carolina. I, I would put probably Citadel over Wofford. That would be my only flip-flop of what we went over. I would I would agree. And those, those middle but again, three teams. We're, right, right. We're still going. I mean, there's still the three favorites, the middle three that could make noise or could drop off, and then the bottom three got a lot of work to do. Here's how the coaches saw it. Chattanooga first. I agree with that. I hate to break it to you. Sanford. Ended up second in the coaches' poll that was revealed. I mean, again, it's hard day. not to not to. I mean, you could see that. Absolutely, VMI third. I think that VMI would see be. That. I think VMI would be offended, but I can definitely see that too. ETSU fourth. Could see it, sure. I think that's underrated. I mean, not, I, nothing is egregious. I would flip there. two and four. 
I would flip Sanford and ETSU. Agreed. Furman I mean, five. I'm going to take one out, but that's just me. Furman five, Mercer seven. Well, you'd have to be an eight-team league if you could. Uh, the Citadel seven, Wofford eight, and Western Carolina nine. Uh, then the media, Chattanooga, VMI, ETSU, Furman, Sanford, Mercer, Wofford, the Citadel, Western Carolina. And you and me both voted in the media poll, so I guess it's not a shock that the media seems to have agreed with us, or maybe we influenced the decision with our votes that top third, middle third, bottom third, exactly that. I, I just want to – one last thing. I'm very confused, and I, I do want to give SoCon John credit, but I did look at the starters returning lost. Every team has 11 starters on offense or defense, correct? And every team has used that 11 number in their returners. Unless there is a new rule, I'm not aware okay, of. Okay, well, the Citadel is returning 13 offensive starters and losing one. They had 14 starters. <laughs> Defense had 12. And I'm thinking, well, maybe they've got special teams. No, no, they had three specialists. So, I, I don't – was that because of opt-outs? Was that because – I'm just – I don't – I'm baffled. I'm excited to see 25 players on the field for the Citadel. 13 on offense. Well, they returned 13. Okay. They did lose one. Right. So, so do they replace one? They still got sure. 14 on offense or no? 13 on offense, 12 on defense? Yeah, so return. That, you know, so like, how is this going to work? I'm excited. Excited to see. It's I mean, you should win more games. It's a new brand of football. You should win more games. That's all I'm saying. I, I do want to bring that up. I, I, I found that. And I do know that there are times where people put 12 starters in the two deep because it depends on what set they're doing and all that. But traditionally, when you're reporting starters returning loss, nobody reports 17 guys returning or not returning. I don't, I don't know what that is. 14, technically. 13. Forget the all 22 and you're looking That's at right. video angles now. Talking all 25. All right. So what do, uh, this is exciting. We, I, we didn't really tease it off the top of the show, but we're unveiling the return Ooh. of the Mystery Guest segment. Mystery Guest Summer 2. Series. 2.0. We're catching people up on what they may have missed over the summer. Of course, we're not on air over the summer. It took about four months, as we typically do, when things just aren't happening as much in ETSU athletics at the collegiate level. But there was a lot going on professionally for people that we know and love, former Buccaneers. And we're going to catch up over the next three or four weeks with a number of them, so we do have that connection to the summer. And the first one is next. This is not something we tease. I'm excited about it. The mystery is still there. We're still doing bold predictions? We're still doing bold predictions after that. I'm probably going to ruin the mystery guest on Twitter. I'm just going to say that. But at least in theory, it's a mystery. Can I, I, um, for a bold prediction win, can I predict the mystery guest? For a bold prediction win, no. Oh, okay. You want to guess, sure, but no, no. You almost said yes, and I was going to take the win there because we have it on tape. We are much like Southern Conference football where bold predictions tends to be separated by three or less points every year. So I just can't give away a point off the top. That is crippling to my chance. As a two-time winner, I agree. Oh, one-time winner. We'll go over that bold prediction. All right, bold prediction. Mystery guess, bold predictions coming up after this timeout. San Jose, on the bucket here. Sport Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. Trump, Trudeau, Trick Daddy, Tram, the insult comic dog. Who's next? I don't know what's gonna happen! 
Thanos and the Sidekick. The triumphant return of our mystery guest segment, always one of my favorites, and call this a triumphant return for perhaps the most tenured guest in Sandos and the Sidekick history. He joined the podcast as a player, then as a quality control coach at ETSU. We had an abbreviated season last year, or I feel like we would have found a way to have him on when he made a cameo in the real world, even. But his triumphant return to the show coincides with his triumphant return to football. The most synonymous player with the second iteration of ETSU football is back around the game, and he's back on Santos and the sidekick. Austin Herrick, welcome back. Glad to be back, Mike. Okay, so I don't really know where to start because you're a humble guy, probably your best quality. It certainly wasn't throwing passes. I can't believe I said that and ripped you when you were nice enough to take time out of your day and a very busy time of year for you, but I am the same guy that you remember. So instead of throwing yourself a party on Twitter, as people often do, because you are so humble, you quietly changed your Twitter byline, quote tweeted a video from a Power 5 football program that I will let you disclose. I don't want to do it. The GBR letter should be a giveaway if you know college football. Now, unless there were some pretty observant people out there that saw you quote tweet, with GBR and then went to your profile and read your byline, they may not have seen that bio change, not connected these two things. Please clear things up for those that are unaware and fill us in. Where has life taken you? And GBR, those letters have led you to what institution? Yeah, uh, so I'm at the University of Nebraska, uh, which is pretty cool for me, being that I grew up a huge Nebraska football fan. Um, My dad's from Nebraska. And so when I started watching football, it was uh, the Cornhuskers. So um, kind of like a childhood dream come true to be somewhat associated with the program. Um, I was working in Nashville um, in an insurance role um, and actually really enjoyed it. I was getting a steady paycheck. Um, I had a lot of friends around. I enjoyed being in Nashville. And then a former ETSU um, Buccaneer Andrew Sims, who's now out here as the director of football operations and chief of staff, gave me a call and said, um, would you be interested in coming to Nebraska? And at first, I was very hesitant. Um, you know, I, I didn't really want to switch up what was going on in my life, but the more and more I kind of understood what I would be doing and what type of opportunity this was, um, I felt like I couldn't pass it up. Um, and so, yeah, here I am sitting in Lincoln, Nebraska, getting ready for uh, week one. We play Fordham here. So uh, excited for that this weekend. Expand on that a little more if you can. You said you were excited about what you'd be doing, not an opportunity you could pass up. What exactly are you doing in your day-to-day, and how did this opportunity stand out outside of the fact that it was back in football and that it was at the University of Nebraska? Yeah, I when I was playing – dead set on coaching I never even thought about operations but um, you know the operations side of things is really doing all the things that the coaches have no time to do um, in modern day college football so getting the hotel set up making sure the players are all set up with um, you know their class schedules their you know everything off the field Um, you know coordinating the flight schedules from game to game uh, making sure the hotels are ready, making sure we have food for the players, um, meeting with the athletic department, kind of being the mouthpiece from the coaching staff to the athletic department, and then back from the athletic department to the coaching staff. Um, and yeah, I, I'd been around operations as a player and my short time as a coach at ETSU, but 
Um, never really considered being in operations, but so far I've really enjoyed it. Um, and then again, I, I think at one point I, I put out a tweet after I got done playing about you know, making the, the, the kid in me proud. Um, and, and this was kind of goes back to that. As a kid, I, I was running around um, watching football and playing football, and, and I was looked up to the Nebraska players. And, um, you know, now here I am working for Nebraska. I thought, still young, I'm uh, single, I really didn't have anything hold me back. Why not um, go out there and just, you know, learn as much as I can and try to immerse myself in this position, but also, um, you know, take advantage of the opportunity of working for my favorite team uh, that I grew up loving. I think that to me is the coolest part, the fact that you're getting to work for a team that you grew up loving. But a close second, and I told you this uh, off air when we were talking about setting up this interview, but I always felt like there was more in the game of football for you than what you had done. It seemed that journey had some steps left in it. You're hardworking, resilient, good communicator, leader, things you need in high-level sports. Did you feel a draw back to the game at all, or am I off base there when it comes to those qualities fitting where you are now? No, I think you're 100% right. I, when I left sports, I didn't have any intention of coming back, but I, I kind of always felt if it was meant to be, it would happen. Um, and that was something that I, I think about every night. You know, if there's, I would pray, if there's any, any inkling of me needing to be in sports, just open that door um, and, and make it obvious. And I don't know anything more obvious than, you know, having an opportunity to take a full-time position at my favorite team um, that I liked growing up. I keep saying that growing up because, you know, I'm a buck for life, so um, they hold a special place in my part, too, or in my heart, too, with uh, Johnson City and ETSU, obviously. But, yeah, it it just seemed really obvious. It seemed like something I couldn't pass up. Um, And it it does feel right. I don't know how long I'll be in sports, um, hopefully quite a while. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it. It's great to be back around a team and a team atmosphere. And, um, yeah, I hope that I can continue to learn and grow. And, um, you know, this could be a career potentially. We mentioned the quote-unquote cameo that you had in the real world. And for people that don't know you personally, you are kind of a philosophical guy. Does it come down to, at this point in your life, exactly what you talked about? It feels right now, so just keep going with this until it doesn't feel right. Are you going down this path in the long term, or is it just one of those things where you don't know what tomorrow holds, so you might as well do what you like today? I think somewhere in the middle um, is kind of how I would answer that. Shout out to Cody Jinks. I don't know if anybody listens to him, but that's a good song by him. Anyway, um, I feel like it's kind of – yeah, I want to live in the present. I want to live in the moment. Make sure that I'm doing what I can um, to be the very best I can be in this role because I like this role and I like being in sports. Now, college sports, obviously, um, you know, it's a tough thing to predict long term what's going to happen. Um, so much less a year. Um, so I'm just kind of you know, doing the best I can do, and um, after the season. Hopefully they want to keep me around, and uh, I'll be able to continue to do this. If not, um, I guess we'll look at other opportunities, whether that's in sports or or out of sports. 
City or Buck for Life. Johnson City loves you. You love it. A couple of Johnson City-related items. Firstly, I saw you on Twitter. Uh, volunteer yourself, essentially, to come back when the statue is finished being built out of William B. Green Jr. Stadium right out front there. Uh, I've seen the bust. It's going in soon. So you are planning on coming back when that does get unveiled, correct? Yes, whenever um, they have the ceremony or whatever and they pull the little sheet off of the, the statue, I will be back for that whenever that day happens. As I mentioned, a, a humble guy. Now, to pull back the curtain a, a little bit, just a little bit here, because I am bitter and we don't really – you know, talk about behind-the-scenes stuff much when it comes to ETSU and the day-to-day operations. But I am bitter because there were talks, and this is true, that you'd come back and join the broadcast this year on either TV or radio to be our game analyst or sideline guy, depending on what platform that you were on. To me, that was super exciting because I think it could have really elevated the shows. Now, I want to hear about what you thought you could bring to those broadcasts. Was it a Tony Romo 2.0? Because anything short of that, I was going to be disappointed. Well, I was really excited about that, too. I was wanting to come back and be as much as involved as I could be with that. Um, I've always thought that's kind of a, you know, a, a dream uh, scenario there to be able to commentate on football games. But um, I, I don't know that I would have been Tony Romo. I would say that I had a distinct advantage in that role because I would know the offense. And I've I've you know, been around Coach Sanders quite a bit, so I, I kind of know what um, he likes to call in certain scenarios. So, um, you know, I, I felt like I could maybe have some um, some of those Tony Romo moments where, like, oh, okay, it's third and three. This is what he's going to, and uh, hopefully guess right a few times. Is it too early for me as a Minnesota Gopher fan, born and raised in Minneapolis, Big Ten obviously, and Nebraska is a newcomer to, big, to the Big Ten, at least in the grand scheme of things, but is it too early for me to take shots at Nebraska quarterbacks that have been there in the past by saying, Austin Herrick, how does it feel to be the best quarterback on campus again? I, I feel like that's that, that's certainly uh, an early shot there <laughs> uh, that we might want to refrain okay. from, uh, and I'm not sure that it's accurate either. Um, but, no, um, actually we're going up to Minnesota uh, here in a few weeks, so I've just been uh, working on getting all that together for the travel party. It's a beautiful, beautiful area. Uh, TCF Bank Stadium is beautiful. Um, if you need hotel recommendations, restaurant recommendations, you know, feel free. Uh, I do absolve myself of any blame far in advance. So if you book something that the coaches don't like, you don't like, you did not hear it from me. Do we agree? Sure. I'll be sure to pass all of the blame off to Mike Gallagher <laughs> and Sandoz with the sidekick. Um, so they'll have to. You'll be taking all the heat for that. I'm cutting this part out of the interview. Uh, okay, so final one, Austin. Uh, now that you've got this you know, new career path, at least in the immediate, right, as we said, you know, who knows what tomorrow holds and have to live for the moment, but you hope this goes somewhere. What is the goal for you now? Because, as you mentioned, you know, coaching, something that you thought of for a long time. In fact, I know that when you were back in Nashville, you still did some quarterback camp type stuff here and there, and we're still involved in football in some part-time roles. So, is it to get to coaching, or do you see yourself in an admin role for a while? What does it look like, or is that to be determined as well? Again, I, I think it's to be determined. I, I, would, I wouldn't mind getting back into coaching, but I've actually really enjoyed um, the operations side of things, getting to uh, talk with people in the administration, um, as well as just being around sports uh, in a capacity that's a little bit different than coaching has been really fun. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we'll just kind of see where that goes. Just kind of, um, as cliche 
football as it sounds, just take one day at a time and um, continue to learn exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and do that the best I can. And wherever that leads me, then, then we'll, we'll go from there. Well, now that you're out of state, I'll send you some updated pictures of the statue and its progress since you won't be able to make sure. it down over the next couple of months to see it yourself, okay? Yeah, whenever that gets done, just shoot me a text, and I'll make sure I get back to Johnson City for that. Austin, appreciate the time, man. So happy to see your success being back in football. It's super cool, I think, to hear from this end and for everybody around Johnson City because, uh, as we mentioned earlier, really the synonymous individual with this second iteration of ETSU football and someone that took it to very big heights. Continued success. Good luck in Nebraska. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good. Appreciate it, Mike. Austin Herring on San Jose and the Sidekick here on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Shohei Otani. I don't know if you heard this yet. He's going to pitch and hit. Mark it down there. Plus 10 ERA. Hit a buck 20 max. There's not a soul that can stop the big three in New Jersey. That's in five, baby. Literally, the last person on earth that should ever be considered for the U.S. national team is JaVale McGee. NIL stands for never in life, as in never in life will NIL be a real thing. No, you can't. You cannot show me one guy more dedicated to the university than Damari Monsanto. He will go down as one of the best to ever do it at ETSU. A newly fit Jay Sandoz will never scuff another drive in Johnson City Country Club. Senior Tour, here we come. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. A simple wrong would have done just fine. <laughs> no, I thought that was genius because I've got, you know, i got several years to hone the skills. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I put the idea in your yeah. head now. Really, yeah. I'm helping you. Yeah. Well, bold predictions. Boy, the slate is wiped clean, isn't it? Zero to zero. Nil, nil. Going into day one of bold predictions. And I'm very excited. Long-term college football. And then one for this Saturday as well because... Let's be honest, bull predictions, when we go into a game day, whether it's football or basketball, they're always in the back of our minds. The amount of times that we've said yes. on or off air to each other in the middle of a broadcast, I'm right there, I got it, I think it's going to happen, and the other is just miserable listening to it is monstrous. I mean, so many times at this point. The, the fact that we will call an exciting play <laughs> in men or women's basketball, football, whatever it is, that is going to put the next guy over. And then, then we'll text the probably not safe for work text to one another back and forth about, dang you for getting that ride, and I had to make it sound great. I think the best last year was I predicted for one of the men's basketball games, 40 combined for the Brewers, and they were at 38. And the other way goes Ty Brewer, but you call it as, or maybe it was Sloan and one of the Brewers. It could have been both, both Brewers because a Brewer scored, and it was the wrong Brewer. I think, I think I projected Monsanto and a Brewer or Sloan and a Brewer. And it's 38 for the two of them, and the wrong Brewer goes the other way. But you called as the Brewer that I had that would have put me at 40. And then you correct yourself like five seconds after. After I'm celebrating in studio, I'm like, yes, yes, Ladarius did it. That's 40. Got my bold prediction. And then... Oh, no, sorry, uh, my mistake. That was Ty Brewer. And we don't get two more points the rest of the day from my two guys. That's, oh, it was devastating. That is just how I mentally beat you up all the time. I believe that that was intentional. I truly Of course do. it wasn't, but it uh, sounds great. Um, you want me to go first go as ahead. the two-time champion? All right, two-time champion will go first. My first one, I think you'll enjoy this. The title game this year 
Christ will have neither. Both will not make it. Alabama and Clemson both will not be in the title game. Wow. Not going to make it. Both. You're starting with our long term. Starting with long term. That um, way we can circle back uh, when the bumper hits on our short term. Yeah. Has that happened yet? I don't think. I'd have to go back and look. We're but like eight years into the playoff. Now, to be fair, you and me also couldn't remember that LSU won the title two years ago. Yeah, we're not, the, we're, we're not the historic. I mean, they played each other like three times, and then obviously Alabama played Georgia. Uh, did LSU, who did LSU beat? I didn't even remember that they won, Man, so I'm not going to remember who they played. Let me go back I, here. I just, what's the brief history? Keep talking. No, stop talking. Okay, stop talking. Ohio State won the inaugural. Who did it beat? Oregon. Gosh. Right, 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 right. It seems like forever ago I, that Oregon Because Ohio, Ohio State beat Alabama to, to get to Oregon. Okay. Alabama beats Clemson, so there's one. Clemson gets revenge the next year. That was a great game. Alabama beats Georgia in overtime, speaking of great games. Then Clemson again. Wow, so Clemson has the three times they've met, Clemson has won twice over Alabama. LSU over Clemson, of course. Alabama over Ohio State. So All but one. The, the first inaugural one, right? year. That yeah, was it. But the last six, okay. one of them has been in. So they're bo- both will not be there. I mean, Alabama did lose, like, what, six first-round picks from their team? I mean, I something mean, uh, yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah, who cares? It's what they are. Okay, so as long as we're going on the national championship game and the college football playoff, I think there's a shifting of the tide coming mm-hmm. to college football. See what yeah, I, mean I did. Iowa State is going to make the college football playoff. Now, are you going with Texas and Oklahoma are going to get hosed by the officials all year? Oh, I like that. Or I wasn't even considering that. But I think it's a shifting of the tide. I think okay. that their minds are already in the SEC. I think they're I would be already... shocked if they get a lot of close calls. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm not going to say it's going to be egregiously 15 penalties to none, but some close calls there that I could see not going their way. I think that their future's already secured and it's elsewhere. And so the next couple of years, they're going to be down. Iowa State, four straight bowls, and the first time finishing a season top ten in program history. Cyclones are going to upset the natural order of things and make the Big 12 forget about those two schools that you mentioned. And in so doing, I believe, could very well change the perception of the league, maybe save the conference. If you have another team outside of Oklahoma and Texas step up, what's the perception of the Big 12 now? It's not a sinking, failing franchise. Instead, you've got some up-and-comers that are going to carry the torch. Brock Purdy's back at running back, he's our quarterback, I should say. Shares 25 records. Charlie Kohler, great tight end target. Brees Hall, running back, All-American. I mean, they've got the pieces. They were, I believe, number seven in the country coming into the year. I like it. Iowa State. Yeah, that's not a bad call. Remember Seneca Wallace? So yes. Far. The last that's time that Iowa State sure. mattered in football. Okay. The run. For ETSU, they've had one Southern Conference win by more than one score. They will have three or more this year. Hmm. Has it really only been one, one. since football VMI. came back? Yes. VMI, that wasn't that like 16 to 3 or something? No, is that Robert? Uh, it, was like, it was like 1970. Okay, it was something okay. like that. It, but yes. Three by multiple scores. Okay. They've only got one in like four years. That's incredible. And that includes championships. That includes the close loss last year. includes this, this past season. Isn't it like 28 of 38 games that Randy Sanders is coaching? Yeah, he scores. loves to give people their money's worth. That's what he loves. Uh, do you believe the all-time Buccaneer record for touchdowns in a game is only blank? What is it? You're the historian. You're the expert. Uh, you're the voice of the box. It's four. Well done. You live up to everything I claim you to be. Can you name the three people that share it? I'll, I'll, I'll take one of the three, even. Because you should know one of them. The other two were way back in the day. 
Give me one. Brandon Walker. No. Uh, In the right era, though. Brian Edwards. No. George Cersei. No. Oof. Good guess. Those are four running backs. Um, Todd Wells. No. This is a guy that you, uh, yeah, you're right, you're right on top of it, though. This is a guy that you have mentioned multiple times on the show. I'll give you the other two. Your guy, Piggy Nolan, versus oh, yeah, Maryville yeah, yeah. in 1957. Piggy Nolan. Uh, I love his name. That's fantastic. He's, got some, good, he's got some good numbers in there, too. And then Dean Bailey versus Maryville in 1933. That would not, Dean Bailey would have. A little bit before your time? Yeah. Only well, but. Piggy Nolan has some stuff in the record, but you can look up and, and see the name appear several times. That might be the only appearance. You got Piggy. Mm-hmm. Who's the other one? One more guess, and then it's over for you. And this is scoring. Scoring or throwing? Uh, yes, touchdowns are when people score. So, okay. so yeah, that's okay. not, not passing touchdowns. So when you get to the end zone and yeah, celebrate. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm biting timer. Oh, gosh. Uh, four touchdowns. He would have been happy if he would have gotten more that day. Cecil. Ah, Dang it. He did not get more, but he did get four. Uh, Who uh, who threw him four touchdown passes? I like that. You were around, I wasn't. I'm going to leave that to you. Okay. It will be tied or broken this year by a buck. I'm not going to say who. I'm hoping it's Juwan Martin on four one-yard completions. (laughs) I'm guessing more likely it will be Quay Holmes. But... I could see a game where Jacob Saylor's, you know, I mean, maybe Nate Atkins has like a giant back on the scene, not injured anymore, breakout game. Yeah, so I'm thinking Quay, obviously. That's probably your odds-on favorite. But four touchdowns for one Buccaneer in a game this season to tie the record. Or five and break the record. Well, and in fairness, not only can he run the ball, but he's caught some screen passes for touchdowns. He does return kicks, so you do have multiple ways that he could get Talking the end too. Yeah, Quay. All right, my third one, I'm going to read you the completion percentage for the team since the five years. Are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> 59 was the best. I'm the best of worst. 59, 57, 56, 56, 55. 55. 55. I'm going, and believe it or not, um, was that last year? I think it was last year. So, Believe it or not, I'm going to say, because the average was like 56 points on another, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go 62% this year. ETSU quarterbacks for the season will have a completion percentage, 62% or better. How many times has a member of the Sanford Bulldogs thrown for a completion percentage of 70 or better over the last six years? Probably every. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, probably every. I mean, just Liam. systems, some stuff, uh, pr- probably every season. Uh, I do not have any more ETSU ones aside from the game prediction that we'll go over in a second. Uh, I've got a larger scale one FBS level, in fact, very close to where we sit here in Johnson City. Tennessee has not had back-to-back three winner less seasons since 1918 and 1919. And in 1918, they technically didn't field an official team, despite keeping track of the win-loss. That more than 100-year streak ends. The ball's bottom out in their first year under Josh Heupel. I love bold predictions. You love hills. <laughs> Sorry, Josh, not this year. All right. For this game, this game, ETSU versus Vanderbilt, the first matchup 2019, ETSU was a spectacular 6 of 17 for 68 yards. It was in a that, wet, that windy day that day. I don't know why you'd even bring it up. Well, Rodell's 1 of 5. 
and he's going to bounce back. 225 yards and a couple of scores wow. for Tyler Rydell. Yes, yes. 225, two scores, Rydell. My guy, the mayor. That is exponential progress from the one for five for 18 yards. That would put them in position to win the game. Now. 225. I can't go stars. I believe this game will be separated one way or another by eight points or less. A one-score game, ETSU on the road at Vanderbilt, pregame 6.30, kickoff 8 o'clock Eastern on the Buccaneers. I am extremely excited because this is, I believe, since I've been here, the best chance the Bucs have had in the Thank you.